Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome everyone to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. My name is Meredith Melnick and I am the Health Director at the Huffington Post. Today we are here to talk about why we overeat, the toxic food environment and obesity. And it is my great honor and pleasure to serve as moderator for this distinguished panel of leaders in the fields of nutrition, pediatrics, obesity, and public health. The Huffington Post is proud to partner with the forum, particularly as the Harvard School of Public Health celebrates its 100th year. Our organizations share as a mission the desire to bring good scientific research to the attention of the public in an effort to affect lasting change on both policy and personal levels. Today, I am joined by Dr. Walter Willett, the Frederick John Stair Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition and the Chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. He is also a Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, the Principal Investigator of the Second Nurses Health Study, and the author of the influential book, Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. I am also joined by Dr. Darius Mosafarian. He is an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Harvard School of Public Health, whose research focuses on eating habits and other lifestyle behaviors as risk factors for cardiovascular and metabolic disease. And I also have Dr. Michael Rich, who is the director of the Center on Media and, Health and Child Health at Boston Children's Hospital, and an expert in the influence of media in terms of childhood development, health, and behavior. Aside from his distinguished medical career, Dr. Rich has also, was also a Hollywood filmmaker for more than a decade. And finally, we have joining us uh, remotely from San Francisco, Dr. David Kessler. He is the former commissioner of the US Food and Drug Administration and serves as a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at University of San Francisco. He is also the author of The End of Overeating, Taking Control of the Insatiable American Appetite. Given the accomplishments of our panelists, it is no surprise that we will be discussing obesity, a health crisis so prevalent that we are at once familiar with and blind to its staggering figures. Currently in America, two-thirds of adults are overweight or obese, and 17% of children are obese. Just this week, the American Heart Association reported that 5% of our nation's children can be considered severely obese, a new classification of extreme weight and metabolic dysfunction, and this rate is trending up. As you likely know, obesity is associated um, and is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and some cancers. Um, in June of this year, the American Medical Association classified obesity as a disease for the first time and what a complicated disease it is. At the time of the resolution, the organization wrote, the suggestion that obesity is not a disease, but rather a consequence of a chosen lifestyle, exemplified by overeating and or inactivity, is equivalent to suggesting that lung cancer is not a disease because it was brought about by individual choice by smoking cigarettes. It is this gray area, the suggestion of the chosen lifestyle, that we are here to discuss. Historically, conventional wisdom has suggested that obesity is the result of personal choice, a failure of willpower, a disease of ignorance, what a low opinion to have of so much of our own community. But now, emerging research presents a, di presents a different view. Genetic predisposition and the environmental influence may conspire to make unhealthful foods, sugary, salty, fat-filled snacks, appealing, desirable, and even potentially addictive. In other words, we are what we eat, but what we eat is what we hear and see. 
Additionally, it is important to note that we have chosen to focus our attention on the crisis among children because the story of childhood obesity is the story of the future of obesity. This sounds obvious, but it bears noting, as obese children become obese adults, we expect to see rises in the diseases associated with obesity, such as heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. Children are also more vulnerable to media influence, and so in examining their experience, we gain insight into the food environment's role in obesity. This panel will address some of the factors that are contributing to this epidemic and some potential solutions that marry scientific discovery and sound policy. The first half of our discussion will center on the problem of obesity in our food environment. I will first turn to Dr. Willett, and each panelist will subsequently have a chance to speak. Between speakers, we will play clips from HBO's recent award-winning documentary, Weight of the Nation, and we'll follow with a brief Q&A. During the second portion of the panel, we will turn the focus of our conversation to solutions, and we will have a chance for final questions. So I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Willett. Can you please, let's start, and give us a sense of what's going on in this country. What's happening in this country is a matter of grave concern. As you've already mentioned, uh, about two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese. Now, there's been some reports in the news that maybe we're reaching a plateau point, and um, maybe it's not quite sure. It does seem that men are still gaining weight. Maybe women are plateauing a little bit. But no matter what, uh, it's not acceptable to be where we are because the consequences of having such a major part of the population overweight or obese means that for decades into the future, the results of that overweight and obesity will continue to mount. The disease rates will go up, uh, costs will go up. So we really have to bring those very high levels of obesity and overweight down. I think it may be uh, worth taking a minute to uh, just say something about this idea of toxic food environment. Uh, it may sound a little strange to some people. Uh, it's not that there's uh, things out there, foods that are just going to poison us immediately. The real, what we mean is that uh, in many people's environment, uh, where they live, where they work, uh, the healthier choices are much more difficult to make than the unhealthy choices. There's, in fact, big industries that put before us within reach, within sight almost all day long unhealthy choices, sugar-sweetened beverages, unhealthy foods. And oftentimes, the healthy choices are not even available. Many people just don't have access to, to healthy foods, uh, depending on where they live. Uh, also, for many people, it's, there's really no place to ride a bike safely to work, which they might know they w should do or, in fact, would like to do, but can't. Then just one more word about genetics. As you say, that's often been raised, and it's very easy to uh, sort of blame the problem on genetics. But there are two simple facts which tell us that the big part of the problem, the majority of the problem, is not genetics. First of all, the fact that obesity rates uh, 50, 60 years ago were only about one-third of what they are now says that this huge increase cannot be explained by genes, which really don't change that quickly. Uh, the second fact is, if we look around the world, there are countries now that are wealthy, affluent countries, where obesity rates are far, far lower. For example, among women in Japan or Sweden, the obesity rates are about 5 or 6 percent, compared to almost 40 percent in this country. And when people come from those countries to live in America, they end up looking like Americans. So uh, while genetics has some role, uh, it, it clearly is not the, the main factor we're seeing here. And in some ways, that's an optimistic solution because it means that potentially we could change our environment and uh, go back to, say, the obesity rates that are similar to those of Japan and Sweden. 
I'm curious when you say, um, you know, genetics is, is often brought up, but it, it doesn't play as big a role as we'd like to think. What do you think people are really referring to when, when they mention sort of our natural tendencies or proclivities? Well, uh, partly genetics means the, the specific DNA patterns that we inherit mm -hmm. from our parents. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that fundamentally is genetics. There's also been um, some theory that has been that we've evolved to live in an environment where food was scarce. And therefore, just in a very general way, uh, it, we are uh, given uh, equal opportunities. We're more likely to overeat than undereat. And I think there is some truth to that. There are driving factors that uh, motivate us to eat hunger. And that's, of course, important for survival. But the problem is that we've. Uh, where we do have a natural sense of sweetness and a natural sense of saltiness. We never had the high levels of sugar and sweetness that we have before today that are engineered into our food, the high levels of sodium and salt that are engineered into our food supply. So in some ways, uh, we're living in a highly unnatural environment and uh, factors. And, and there's been a lot of research that has gone into essentially using our evolutionarily derived senses, sweetness, saltiness, to uh, encourage us to overeat. And I think Dr. Kessler will probably talk about that because he's thought a lot and written about that. Yes, well, I'm really looking forward to hearing that. But before we turn uh, over to everyone else, we're going to play our first clip from uh, the HBO series Weight of the Nation. We tried every sport in the book to get Kaylin up and moving. Right now, where where kids socialize is online, um, through Facebook, mm -hmm. on games. I mean, his friend time is sitting in a chair with his headset playing a video game. I mean, this kid has been on basketball teams. He's been on baseball teams. He's had swimming lessons. He's been on soccer leagues. He had fencing lessons. He. I honestly, I I, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> we have tried it all. And he did not find something that he really, baseball, he did not find anything yeah. that he connected to. You'd never want to hear the news that things are less than optimal in your child's health. There you go. Okay, heels against the wall. And try to push your belly button backwards. Look straight ahead. That's good. Slide down a little bit towards your feet. Okay, Kayla, it's important that you stay very still now for me. Kaylin was always a kid that would get a little wider and then you get taller and then you get wider and you get taller. And there's a point that he wasn't keeping up with that same pattern. To have some of those tests come back and show that, yes, you know, his cholesterol is elevated and his triglycerides are elevated. You know, that's hard. I mean, that's hard to take because you think, well, those are adult problems. I mean, you know, I have high triglycerides and, you know, spotty cholesterol. Just coming to the level of your knees now, Kaylin. Two minutes to go. You're doing a great job. He's a kid. He shouldn't be having these kinds of issues. We are almost done. Hang in there. So, Dr. Mozafarian, I want to turn to you. Um, Obviously, this clip uh, sort of focuses on the inactivity and how that might contribute to some of the metabolic dysfunction that uh, more and more children are experiencing. Um, and I'd love to hear from you just a little bit about what other factors could have been in play here and if this is sort of part of a larger 
trend as they seem to imply. Uh, yeah, so thank you. So, and, and thank you for uh, hosting this, this forum uh, with, with Harvard School of Public Health. Um, I, I think that this clip really exemplifies uh, the, the problem of searching for causes. You know, people want to know the causes, and we need to know the causes to understand the solutions. And, and this child and his parents are, are trying to understand, you know, he's, we're doing all these things, where he's doing all these activities, why is he gaining weight? And uh, in, my, in my role as a, as a cardiologist at Brigham Women's Hospital, I see patients, adult patients, who are uh, having similar problems. And so I think that the, the clip uh, emphasizes the need to look for causes. And I think that uh, his experience is quite similar to, to many children in that they're, they're focusing on s uh, sitting down and activity and, and, and uh, the problems of physical inactivity. And certainly kids are not as active as they should be in this country. Um, but in terms of what's really the major driver in the U.S. Um, and most Western countries, the major driver of the obesity epidemic is diet, is food. And so I would guess in the, in the case of this child that during all those basketball events and swimming events, they have these big breaks and they have all sorts of foods and snacks and you know, who knows what he's eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so he's exercising, but he's eating more than he's exercising. And I think that's really the, the, the major driver is diet. And so I think that uh, the first theme that I think we really need to understand is what are the dietary priorities that are, that are important um, uh, in terms of what foods are important. And this is where the science has really come a long way uh, in the last few decades. Um, so I think that we used to think, well, it's just how much you eat. If, if just eat less and you'll be fine. It's just calories, just count calories. And, and we've learned that it's um, in some ways um, much simpler than, than that. In some ways it's, it's more complicated. It's really uh, the quality of what a person eats is what's important. And so we can't just, just focus on calories, but, but what are those calories? What are the types of calories people are eating? Um, and I, that's a very different message than is out there right now, where, where people say, just look on the back of the box and pick your food based on the servings per, per calorie. It's really the kind of food that's, that's important. Uh, and the second thing in terms of the causes, in terms of diet, diet quality, is, is if we want to define what a healthy food is, I think that the science is showing that we have to move away from these simple nutrient blames. So you mentioned um, sugar, salt, and fat. That's sort of become this mantra that's, that's not very evidence-based, that it's sugar, salt, and fat. It's really thinking about the whole food and how it's processed and how it's consumed. And so I think that um, they're uh, more important than probably the, in, any individual ingredient is the extent to which the food is processed, uh, how easily it's digested, its portion size. Um, and so there's a, uh, a large range of foods outside snacks, you know, just what people are eating for dinner all the time, eating in restaurants all the time both regular restaurants and fast food restaurants that are, that are unhealthy because of extensive processing. And I think the, the low-fat uh, uh, craze led to this explosion of refined carbohydrates, grains, and sugars all together, both in the food and, and in terms of beverages. Um, so I think that that's important. The second important thing, I think, is we focused a lot on what, what not to eat. And, and I think we need to focus more on, on the good things to eat. And so rather than just focusing on, on you know, the bad things in the, in the diet that we have to get rid of, we need to emphasize the good things that should be increased. So fruits, vegetables, nuts, whole grains, um, and yogurt seems to be linked to weight gain. We can talk about, to, to less weight gain, we can talk about that too. And so I think for someone like this, or, and for the nation as a whole, rather than pushing industry to take this ingredient out, take that ingredient out, ban that ingredient, we should be thinking of ways and policies, and we'll hopefully discuss this in the second segment, um, thinking of ways and policies to increase healthy foods and, and make healthy foods more available. Because you can eat 100 calories of broccoli, 200 calories of broccoli, 300 calories of carrots. Um, you don't have to count the calories. The more you eat, the better, actually. So, so you know, you sh we should be increasing our intake of healthy foods. So I think that's, that's very important. It's, it's not to say that physical activity is unimportant. Of course, that's, that's part of it. But 
But since 1980, where the obesity epidemic really kicked in in this country, it's really just been 30 years. Physical activity is more or less stable. Um, and in fact, there's a segment of the population that's exercising more than ever, marathons and gyms and so forth. So diet's really the, the, un the underlying uh, uh, major player uh, of the problem in our country. So one part of the clip I thought was really interesting was um, the father sort of comparing his own health history to the child's health history. And I'm wondering if uh, those are sort of have similar, obviously can't speak specifically, but generally speaking, would those have the same sort of causes? I mean, is the thing that's causing these sorts of metabolic dysfunction in children also the same thing that's causing it in adults. Yeah. So, so, the, so the you know the the first theme that I think is important that the clip highlighted is is understanding what the right priority should mm -hmm. be, and clearly it should be diet and foods and food quality. The second is understanding, as you said, the causes and the causes over time, because there's been a change since 1980 to now, and the 1950s and 60s and 1970s were not this golden age of lifestyle and this golden age of diet. I mean, if you go look, think of the happy days and. They're always eating in the burger joint and you know getting shakes and so so we, we shouldn't think back that we were in the 1960s we were all running marathons and exercising and eating super healthy food. So what's changed since 1980? And and I think that what's what's changed I think there's a pretty short list. And so I think as I said the low fat craze has caused kind of an explosion of refined carbohydrates, uh, potatoes and sugars. Um, liquid calories have gone way up, way, way up from, from 1980, um, especially sugar-sweetened beverages, but also energy drinks and iced teas and you know, iced sweetened coffees. We, consumption has increased dramatically. Um, television watching has gone up dramatically, and the, the marketing of uh, the, the, um, uh, the marketing abilities of, of television have, have increased dramatically. And so TV watching as a cause of diet Poor diet has, has gone up dramatically. Sleep has gone down, and there's growing research that, that lower sleep leads to, to obesity. And then lastly, the, which gets maybe directly to your question too, there's, I think there's growing evidence of generational effects for obesity, that a, mo a mother who's obese is more likely to have a child that's obese. And that could just be because of the household environment. But in, in animal experiments, it seems to be there's also this biologic effect. Mm -hmm. And whether it's because of the placenta and how the placenta develops, or gut bacteria and what gut bacteria the mother passes on to the baby or these other things, there's also generational effects. And so I think those five or six causes are the big players. And if we can target those big players, um, you know, we can help reduce risk for both the parent and the child. That's great. And then, Dr. Rich, I'd like to, to turn to you to talk a little bit about the media element of this. So um, obviously in the, in the clip, this, uh, this young man is playing video games. There's been a lot of research, much of which you've done, that sort of uh, deals with uh, you know, media minutes or hours and, and obesity. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your insights. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, well, interestingly, to go on what Dr. Muzaffarian said, um, TV watching has gone up dramatically, and not only that, but screens have gone up dramatically. It's not just TV. He was playing a video game and eating a Slim Jim, I might add, <laughs> at the same time. Um, but um, that being said, we've known for a couple of decades that there is what we call a dose-response relationship between the amount of TV watched and your risks of being overweight or obese. Um, in other words, the more you do, the more fat you are likely to be. Um, but what we don't know exactly is how that works. We, we, what we see now today is that young people between the ages of 8 and 18 are using media actively on average across the country for 7 hours and 38 minutes of every day. And because of multiple screens, they are actually exposed to 10 hours and 45 minutes of content every day. 
much of that content is paid for and driven by advertising. Um, now, people have gotten fairly sophisticated about not only making advertising, but reading advertising. And so that advertising is now in the form of brand involvement in the shows, so product placement, uh, looking at the what's, what's on the table, on the judges' table in various competitions, et cetera. Um, but not only that, but um, we now have in the interactive environment, advert gaming. Um, kids who get involved in games that have products in, in, in them. And this is a very immersive environment. And our early research is looking at the fact that this may be even more potent than actual advertising because the child drives the story. The child reaches out for that product or that achievement. Um, so we've been also looking at what the nature of this interaction is because these screen and the screen time is not going to go down. Um, and a recent study that we did um, and published in pediatrics showed that it's not all screens that are equal. It's actually television and it's the amount of attention paid to television, the amount of time they're actually paying attention to it as opposed to it just being in the background. That's the real driver of the relationship between screens and what's, what, what's going on in terms of their overweight. Um, so our working hypothesis with this is that when they're watching the screen, they're not seeing advertisements for the broccoli and carrots so you can eat as much as you want. Or they're seeing advertisements for something a little bit different, something a little more toxic, something a little more processed and with the wrong kinds of nutrients or lack thereof. Um, the other piece is what we saw in this clip is this is going on while they are distracted by the, what they're watching on screen. So in other words, they are stimulating eyes and ears and they're stimulating tongue, but they're doing it in a way that is distracted from their hunger and satiety cues. So they're not eating for physiologic reasons, they're eating for comfort reasons, for stimulus reasons in that setting, disconnected from their body, their, their body signals. So I think that's an interesting issue. Now, the other piece of this as a pediatrician that I worry about is that we know from developmental psychology that young children under the age of seven or eight cannot distinguish persuasive intent. Mm -hmm. What that means is that they see the advertising for sugar-sweetened cereals, for cookies, for, for candy, the same way they see Sesame Street teaching them ABCs or the numbers. Um, they take it in the same light. And when you ask them about it, they assume that those are really nice things that those really nice people are making me aware of as opposed to someone wants to sell something to me by way of my mom and how much I can nag her, um, which is actually what it's about. In fact, marketing meetings actually meet around the concept of the nag factor, how to build the nag factor. So I think we have to look in terms of policy at what the ethics of advertising to those who are unable to understand that it is advertising are. Um, and beyond that to the Pro, the beyond advertising, the new age advertising that isn't really advertising, but it is the can of a soda on a table in front of a celebrity. It is what, what games you're playing online. Um, and we need to move toward an environment where we're being honest with 
with the kids and with mm -hmm. consumers, but particularly with kids, because one of the things we do know from science is that very early in life is when we form our expectations for the way food should taste, the things that I want, the things that I don't want. You know, we, we have to get through all those battles with mom to eat our veggies. You know, we have to do that because if we get to six or seven or eight and we've never had to eat broccoli, we may have missed the window of opportunity for developing that taste. And if we're filling that with other kinds of foods, um, those are the foods we're going to expect to eat. Would you say that the habits, the sort of mindless eating, are also something that sort of developed and, and sort of becomes rote over time? Or oh, certainly. I mean, I think, I think the interesting thing about the whole genetics argument is that you know, genetics are a way of making it out there, the, the responsibility for it out there. The reality is the way you put either good or not so good food in you is behavior. It's human behavior and what we do with that. So those are habits that we develop from very early on, you know, that, that when I sit down in front of a television, I'm going to eat. Um, or when I do this, I'm going, you know, or when I'm eating a meal, I'm, I have to have a screen on to distract me. There are moms who actually turn on a television to distract their kid from the fact that they're eating. And so they actually are training them to be disconnected from very early on. Um, and that can get the broccoli in when they're four, but by the time they're 18 or 20 and they're eating on their own, they don't have the screen, they, they, they can't eat, and or they eat without any controls when they're in front of the screen. That's fascinating. Well, I'd, I'd love to turn the conversation over to Dr. Kessler, um, just to tell us a little bit um, about what's going on neurologically, you know, when, when these kids are looking at television screens, and um, so please go ahead. So th thanks for having me uh, cross country. Um, you have up there, uh, where you are. I mean, there is no more distinguished panel um, than you have. Um, you have to know uh, just uh, Walt, being on the same panel with Walter uh, is uh, somewhat daunting because uh, there is no one in the world uh, who knows more about nutrition uh, and epidemiology um, than you have on this panel. Saying that, um, if you turn around, the panelists turn around and uh, look at the question on the screen, the question is why we overeat. Uh, and I would argue um, that if this were an exam and you just read the answers uh, that the panelists gave, um, the grades would not be very high because I don't think we've answered that question. Right. So, 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 so what have we heard and what can we agree on? Okay? The one thing we agree on, something has happened right, over the last three, four decades. So we all agree epidemiologically that uh, something's changed uh, in this country, and it happened sometime in the 1980s. We also agree that it can't be genetics, it can't be genetics alone, because genes don't change in three, four decades. Then we've heard words called toxic food environment, but no one's really defined what it is about the toxic food environment. We've heard about, use the word quality of food. We've heard the word processing. But why do we overeat? What's driving that? I had the opportunity to go give a talk to the American Society of Bariatric Physicians. These are the physicians who uh, deal with weight. These are not the surgeons 
these are the medical docs. Um, and, you know, certainly I grew up when I was, you know, when I was trained in amphitheater to see and I, uh, I lived there, you know, this was about uh, the set point. This was about calorie homeostasis. This was about energy in, energy out. This was about metabolism. And that group of bariatric physicians were trained in that generation. I asked them a very simple question. I said, let me give you three characteristics. One, the loss of control, the perceived loss of control in the face of highly palatable foods. Two, uh, a lack of satiation, a hard time stopping once uh, you begin. Three, a preoccupation, uh, a thinking about foods uh, while you're eating or, or between meals or when that pizza box is there and there's one slice left and you're thinking, am I gonna get that slice? And I said, take those three characteristics, loss of control, lack of satiation, preoccupation with food. What percentage of the patients do you see right, who are overweight and are obese, who come to you, have those three characteristics? What do you think I heard? What percentage? They said, you're defining my patients. I mean, this is 95% this is of the patients we see have this loss of control, lack of satiation, and a preoccupation with foods. And then I said, well, what's driving that? I mean, what's causing that? And the answer to me was astonishing, because these are the people who take care of these patients. They say, well, we've never thought about it. I mean, that is evidence, loss of control, lack of satiation, a preoccupation with food is evidence of a conditioned and driven behavior. Then the question becomes, what, what is driving that conditioned and driven behavior? I would argue that yes, we can all agree that there's something in the last three decades that's changed our environment. But the environment alone, I mean, if we put sawdust on every corner, not everybody would start eating sawdust. So what is it that's driving that conditioned and driven behavior? I would disagree with the panel, I mean, with, with the comment, um, that it's not sugar, fat, and salt, because if you look at what's reinforcing, right, what's self-administered, Jack Henningfield, I mean, when we did tobacco, Jack is probably, you know, one of the leading, was one of the leading NIDA researchers, knew more about nicotine, and he kept on talking about how rats will press a lever for nicotine, um, but the other thing that the control was was sweetened beverage, and he never explained why rats were pressing the lever for the sweetened beverage, right, more than uh, for other uh, substances. Uh, the fact is, I mean, if you look, um, that, uh, and you look at, uh, we, we just did the very basic experiment, it, it was almost embarrassingly simple. I mean, if you look at the vanilla milkshake, and say, what's driving consumption in that vanilla milkshake? Is it the sweetener? Is it the fat? Uh, is it the flavor? And you, and you actually ask, you can do this with animals, how, how, whether they will press a lever or, or whether, uh, in fact, uh, they will, with humans, whether they will work for it. You find that the most reinforcing uh, substance is the sweetener, but when you add fat to it, it's synergistic. Why do we overeat? We took fat, sugar, and salt, we put it on every corner, we made it available 24-7, we made it socially acceptable to eat at any time, we made food into entertainment. 
walk into any food mall. I mean, we're living in a carnival. What did we expect to happen? That's actually a really wonderful place to, uh, to stop so that we can get some Q&A going. We, if we have some questions from the audience, if I, I know I have a million questions. So please, um, just raise your hand if you have one. Thanks so much. This is so interesting. I hope um, there's a lot of, I'm interested in how the science of nutrition gets conveyed into uh, thinking along this idea of what's the, um, the optimal things to eat. And in particular, the difference between the, the optimal diet, the optimal foods for health and longevity and well-being versus the foods that we would recommend for people uh, uh, trying to lose weight and whether those are necessarily the same and if the messages about those are the same. And the example I have in my mind is the study that came out a few weeks ago about blueberries and that blueberries are associated with a reduced risk of diabetes. I'm not sure that that message applies equally to people if they're trying to lose 100 pounds right now versus trying to eat for long-term uh, good health? I could try to answer that one. Uh, yes, I think it's useful to think uh, that our goals are uh, optimal overall well-being, which would mean low rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, hopefully, uh, uh, stroke. Uh, and then weight control uh, is, a, is a very important issue in itself. It's so important uh, because it has so many consequences. Uh, but fortunately, pretty much from everything we've looked at, there's a quite close alignment between what would be good for overall health and what's better for weight control. Uh, the closest sort of natural or uh, t traditional pattern is the Mediterranean diet. And we've seen that that's good for uh, reducing diabetes, good for reducing uh, cardiovascular disease and probably some cancers. And it's interesting, the analysis that Dari led, uh, uh, published in the New England Journal a couple of years ago, looking at the individual foods and how they relate to weight, uh, too much weight gain or less weight gain. If you look at the foods relating to less weight gain, they almost are the, describe the Mediterranean diet. They're the less processed whole foods, fruits and vegetables, whole grains. Uh, low amounts of uh, red meat and interestingly some yogurt as well. So I don't think there's a, any huge uh, discordance there. Uh, the, in regard to blueberries, uh, you only, in, in that particular study, you only had to have a you know, handful of blueberries three times a week. And so that's uh, to have some good health benefits, it looks like. Uh, and clearly, we're not suggesting that anyone uh, eat a blueberry diet and almost nothing but blueberries. <laughs> but that, along with other fruits and vegetables, to include some blueberries on a regular basis seems like a good idea. And that'll really be a very small part of the total diet. And as a clinician who deals with this, I'd like to add one thing too, which is it's not just about losing weight, it's about changing lifestyle. It's about changing to a lifestyle that maintains a healthy weight. And so in that way, those two food sets are much more similar too, because what you're really doing is not, I'm just gonna drop 100 pounds in the next year, but more that I'm going to drop 100 pounds in whatever time it takes for me to get there in a way that I can sustain and maintain that healthy diet. I have a, a kind of a two-part question. And the first is, how well do you think we have communicated to the public about this issue of the toxic environment? And how well have we defined that to them? Especially, I guess the second part would be, to an American public that really believes in individual agency and self-realization. 
I, I can maybe uh, respond to that and also uh, partially respond to the prior question. So I, I think that you know, it takes about uh, 10 years for science to get to policy, and it takes about 10 years for the policy to maybe enter the consciousness, very crudely, more or less. But it, and I think that, that uh, you know, what is out there in the public and is what is out there in the policy doesn't yet reflect the, the best science. And that, that's just natural and, and takes time. And so I think that um, this will take time to get out to the public and to policymakers. But, but I think that, that the science shows that it's the, the types and quality of the food we're eating that are important, and that what's driving the types and quality of the foods we're eating uh, is marketing, uh, is probably the biggest player, uh, portion sizes, um, uh, television watching, low sleep, um, uh, lot, lots of changes in our environment that are driving that. The, the obesity epidemic uh, was mentioned by, by Meredith at the beginning. Obesity used to be thought of by clinicians as a totally a problem of individual will. But I think the rapidity of its increase across the population, not only in the U.S., but across the globe, shows that it's not a problem of individual will. And I think children are the, are the real uh, bellwether for this problem because you know, there's a five-year-old is not choosing to be obese. A, a seven-year-old is not choosing. So the, so the fact that across all socioeconomic strata, across all races in the U.S., across all countries, in China, in Tanzania, children are becoming obese. In Italy, you know, in the Mediterranean, children are becoming obese. Shows you that it's not individual will, it's the environment. And so, and so I think that it will take some time to explicitly define what it is about the environment that is causing it. I think we have a list of the top five or six, six things that are pretty solid, but you know, we'll have to refine that list. And so I think that policymakers and countries like the U.S. where individual will is sort of sacrosanct will have to realize that this is not just a problem of individual will. Yeah, could I respond to that a little bit too? And it actually brings in what Dr. Kessler was saying, and I quite agree with him. Uh, actually, the underlying problem is probably research, and that's a little bit hard for us to swallow as researchers, <laughs> but it's researchers done by the food companies. And they, uh, you have to remember, their primary objective is to sell more of their product, and they are competing with everybody else in the food industry to uh, make their product more seductive and to get people to eat more of it. And so they've been doing vast amounts of research, billions and billions of dollars, to find out what's the optimal level of saltiness, what's the optimal level of sweetness, what's the best mouthfeel. And, and they've been optimizing that, doing, and every year they get better and better. Their research is cumulative. Now, we never see that research in the published literature uh, because it's secret, usually, and it's going on behind closed doors, but vast amounts of research. And then, of course, they do research on marketing and product placement and packaging and flavoring and uh, coloring and all those things. Everything is optimized to uh, get, especially kids, uh, seduced to consuming more of their product. And so I think Dr. Kessler is absolutely right that this is the natural consequence of a capitalistic food supply where everybody's out there competing with each other to get us to eat more of their product. And I think we have to realize at some point there has to be some restraint or constraint on that because kids are born like they always were. They have the same susceptibilities and that balance between the power and, uh, and the aggressiveness of the marketing and the products uh, and their, their seductiveness gets more and more out of balance with the innate uh, characteristics of children. Uh, so w there is a real political issue there if we believe that there's a completely, uh, we should have no restraints, uh, the problem's not going to go away. It's only get, going to get worse. So. Uh, especially when it comes to kids. In fact, what you realize, kids are being exploited. It's just as bad as having children in sweatshops. They are being exploited for profit. And 
we do have to develop some constraints, some restraints on this very aggressive process that is under which research is actually the, 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 the principal factor. Or, or at least incentive to do something different. If not a restraint, then an incentive to go a different path. Well, the interesting <laughs> thing <laughs> in regard And the interesting thing in regard to free will is look at how marketing is done. It is not marketing the product, it is marketing lifestyle. It is marketing, I'm not going to be constrained or restrained. I'm not going to do what mommy or daddy or the nanny state says. I'm going to do what I feel like doing. And virtually every product, food included, is marketed that way. I just want to maybe dig a little further with our panelists. What is it about? Um, because, I mean, let's stipulate um, that Walter is right. Okay, I mean, I think the evidence of the Mediterranean diet, there is something close, uh, is close to an optimal diet. What is it about that diet, right, um, that makes it different from the American diet? Um, obviously, um, the fat and sugar, fat and salt, fat, sugar and salt, I mean, is not characteristic of that Mediterranean diet. Second is the degree of processing. And what is it about the degree of processing that's important? Right? The, the, the fact is that back 20, 30 years ago, food wasn't as highly, I mean, when I, you know, we used to eat whole foods. We used to eat, uh, when we chewed foods, maybe there was 20, 30 time, 30, 20, 30 chews per bite. Um, by processing foods, a lot of advantages to processing foods, cheaper, longer, uh, shelf life, ship it over longer uh, distances. But when you, when food is highly processed, I mean, it, there's no substrate to it. I mean, there's no chewing. I mean, count the number of times that you chew a highly processed food. I mean, it goes down in a whoosh. Now make it super stimulating by adding fat sugar, fat sugar and salt to it. Now say, okay, we're going to allow, we're going to take down what we used, when did we used to eat? We used to eat during mealtime, I mean, if you look, that's when the Europeans used to eat until fast food came. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 certainly back in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up, we ate uh, during uh, mealtimes. We took down those uh, barriers. Now we said it's okay uh, to eat uh, all the time. So I think that that Mediterranean diet is, is right, but what's the difference? I mean, and it starts, I would argue, and maybe the evidence will not uh, bear this out, right? But, the, but at the core of it is the fact we have the sweetest diet in the world. I mean, and the fact that even on the food label, and I, I, you know, we can all go into the arguments about added sugar versus natural sugar. The fact is, I would, I would put out the hypothesis that if our diet was not the sweetest diet in the world, we wouldn't have this obesity epidemic. So, so I think that it's worth, I think that's a great uh, a way to think about the problem is to look at compare optimal diets versus not. And I think it really helps us hone down on this question of fat, sugar, and salt. And so, so the first important point is that the traditional Mediterranean diet is much higher in fat than the U.S. diet. So the U.S. diet's about 30, 35% energy from fat, 35%. The traditional Mediterranean diet's 44% energy from fat, 45% energy from fat. So, so right there, that, that you know, of course, 
is a problem with fat being a driver of the obesity epidemic. In, 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 many, in many, excuse me, I'll just second Dr. Kessler, in, in many randomized trials, high fat diets are better than low fat diets for, for weight loss. So I think, I think this issue of fat is, is, clearly there's a difference between healthy fats and, and unhealthy fats for, for health and for weight gain. Uh, so, and, and in the United States, in the, since 1970, 1980, fat intake has gone down as a proportion of calories, not gone up. Salt intake has stayed stable. So, so to blame salt or fat for the obesity epidemic, I think, is exactly backwards. Now, sugar, I agree that sugar is a problem, but sugar is no greater a problem than, than totally unsweetened refined grains. And it's the, it's the worry I have about just focusing on sugar. It gives the refined grains, gets them off the hook. So white bread, you know, all refined cereals that have no added sugar at all, they, don't say, they say zero sugar on the panel. Those are just as bad. And when we've looked at you know, populations of hundreds of thousands of people, the weight gain associated with Skittles is exactly the same weight gain as associated with cornflakes, or white bread, or a bagel. So to, to, to think that a bagel that has no sugar um, is, is different than you know, candy is really misleading. And so and Michael Moss actually wrote this great book, Fat, Sugar, and Salt. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great book if you read it, because what it shows is that all of the products that were successful in that book, all of them, their fat, sugar, and salt content didn't change. What changed was the marketing. What changed was, was the branding. They, they went from one Prego to 10 kinds of Pregos. Uh, they, they, you know, Coca-Cola Coca Coca hasn't changed its, its ingredients. And its sweetness is just the same as every other soda out there. Coca-Cola dominates because of its marketing. So, so, so the Moss book, although he intended to talk about fat, sugar, and salt, the title should have been Marketing, Advertising, and Promotion. That's really what's changed since 1980 and what, what I think uh, uh, Walter was talking about. So I think that it's true that they're making products that they're trying to be palatable for us, but their fat content has gone down, their sodium content is stable, and their sugar content has gone up, that's true. But what's really changed is, is that they're all around us, which I agree completely with Dr. Kessler, they're marketed in insidious ways, um, they're the easier choice, and it's harder to get the fruit or the vegetable or the, uh, or the other things. And, 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 and I was going to say portion sizes have gone up, and, and they're also being prepared by other people. So the proportion of foods that are being prepared outside the home, where we have much less control over their contents, has gone up. So I think that it's, it's more complicated than just taste, is, is, is I think the... Uh, can, can I just respond? Sure. Uh, I think the fact is, I didn't say the problem was sugar, I mean, it was uh, fat, sugar, or salt just isolated, right? The fact is that fat is nauseating, right? I mean, you can only eat a certain amount of fat uh, before uh, feeling nauseated. Um, but when you add to that fat, when it's fat and sugar, fat and salt, right? I mean, I mean the, the, the fact is, I mean, I think we have the, the highest palatability. If you look at hedonic taste, if you look at what sustains eating and people keep on eating, right? The fact is, if you didn't have fat and sugar or fat and salt, right? I mean, together, right, you, would, you would have a normal satiation. Fat and sugar and fat and salt override that normal uh, satiation. And I, and I think that the nutrition community, I, I, I think we can make a, uh, an argument that, you know, well, added sugar is no different than natural sugar. Uh, and uh, it's in products, and that's true, right? Uh, but the fact is, by making the American diet the sweetest, I think uh, we would be in a very different situation. I mean, we need to do the experiment. Right? The epidemiology may not be good enough, it may not be sensitive enough to really uh, uh, 
define these drivers. I think this is actually a, a wonderful place to play the second clip from the HBO show that we have, Weight of the Nation, which deals a lot with uh, the sort of bedfellows of these, of these elements, <laughs> these ingredients. We talked about sugars, because if you drink a lot of sugar, that sugar turns into what? Fat. Yeah, which is very, very unhealthy for the body. And so I have a little demonstration here. If I can have some of the volunteers come up and help me with this. We have natural orange juice. We have a Red Bull. We have a Starbucks Frappuccino. So out of those, which one has the most sugar? Starbucks. The Starbucks, OK. How many teaspoons do you guys think it has? Five. Keep going. Twelve. Keep going. Fifteen. Keep going. Twenty. Twenty-five. Twenty-five teaspoons, 100 grams of sugar in the Starbucks Frappuccino. The Coke and the Sprite have 17 teaspoons. The chocolate milk has 16. The orange juice has 10 teaspoons. A lot of parents think juice is good for my kids. It has vitamin C. It has a little sprinkle of vitamin C, but it has a ton of sugar in it. If you're only going to remember one thing from today, is to just stop drinking juice, stop drinking soda. You guys don't need it. Changing what we eat and drink, making it easier to do the healthy things, that's the sweet spot for public health. We have to change for children what good looks like. So, Dr. Willett, I want to turn to you. Um, do you think that's an effective education method? Well, I think uh, this is a part of the picture. And one yeah. thing that I think we understand now is that there's no magic solution. Uh, Dari is uh, right. I think we need to understand what are the drivers of obesity, but then how do we implement that knowledge? How do we act upon that knowledge? And I find it helpful to think of uh, the variety of places where we need to have action. Uh, think even uh, just reducing sugar-sweetened beverages, which research has shown that that is a very important uh, c contributor to the weight gain that we've had. Uh, uh, it's not just talking about uh, uh, education and, and uh, learning about the problem with sugar-sweetened beverages. Uh, that's part of the solution, but there are things, I th the places I think we, it's helpful to think about are schools, uh, work sites, and uh, I think we can probably talk more about the things that have been done in schools. There's been some great progress. There are work sites. We can change what's available or what's given a priority or create some price differentials. Healthcare system, that's often a place for education, but it's also a place where we should be sh putting into practice that hospitals are full of sugar-sweetened beverages. Now, why are they in hospitals? It's like, why was tobacco in hospitals? <laughs> they, shouldn't, uh, they shouldn't be there. There's the physical environment that we need to uh, optimize for promoting physical activity. There's the, f the food environment, which is the media and, and what uh, people are hearing. It's part of what you're talking about. We need to have public health surveillance and pr to monitor what's going on. We need to do economic analyses, uh, which can translate into policies as well. So there's all of these places where we need to have action. And if we only focus on one, it'll make a small dent in the problem. We really need to have uh, people working all the way uh, down the line, looking at all of these opportunities. Absolutely. So I'd love to just hear from everyone what your sort of policy, what's the next step, you know? Well, I, I'd also like to partially answer your question. One of the things that we've learned time and again in public health is that negative tactics such as this don't work. 
We learned that with the black lungs we showed to kids around smoking. We learned that with DARE and substance abuse. We've learned it time and again. It seems to work for us. If they can only understand how much sugar's in this, they'll stop drinking it. But we know that changing knowledge does not equal changing behavior. And they're still craving those sweet, you know, those sweet beverages, sweet foods. And um, what we really need to do is take our cognitive desire for something healthier. I mean, look at the number of foods that are marketed saying all natural, you know, and it's yogurt candy or something with contains real yogurt. Um, uh, but so, so I think that we need to take the cognitive desire we have to eat healthier and actually connect it with the foods that we're actually giving to folks and particularly to very young children because that's when they develop the things that they like the things that you know the instincts they have for I think I'll have an apple instead of I think I'll have a candy bar uh, so so I, I think that um, there's there's two ways to think about the obesity problem one is and the way we've always had traditionally thought about it is how do we get people who are overweight or obese to lose weight that's sort of, sort of the clinical problem but I think just as in cardiology, we learned that, that you know, 30, 40 years ago, we were focused on treatment of heart attacks. But how do we save people's lives when they had a heart attack? And then we realized, you know, this would be a little bit better if we actually just prevented the heart attack in the first place. And this concept of prevention has really taken hold and, and you know, dominates cardiology now. We need to move the same way for weight gain. So, so obviously, people who are overweight and obese, we, sh we should help them. But we need to prevent weight gain in the population. And so how do we do that? Well, the, the, the amount of caloric imbalance that leads to weight gain is pretty small. The, the body is actually remarkably well compensated um, in terms of how much you over eat or overeat. It's about a pound a year in the average person that, that, that you gain. Uh, and maybe 50 or 100 calories a day difference will do that. So we're actually remarkably well compensated. You'll have a huge meal. In this crazy environment that we're in, with all the food and all the marketing and everything, it's remarkable we're not getting more weight. We're, it's a very slow, so, slow, slow uh, uh, increase. So, so how do we turn around this 50 to 100 calories a day, this pound a year, you know, over, over time? You know, we can actually look at it very optimistically. It's a, it's, it was a very easy uh, uh, balance to flip over the edge from 1980 to now. We've, we've flipped it. It should be relatively easy to flip back if we can just find the big, the big drivers. So, so I think the you know, trillion dollar question is, is are there, you know, 100,000 little things that are all together driving the obesity epidemic? Or is it, you know, five or six or seven things that are driving 70 or 80% of it? And, and I think there's five or seven things that are, that, are, that, that are big players. And so we can set up both, you know, some education, but education alone does not work. Knowledge alone is not enough. You have to have knowledge and environment together. And so I think that um, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages, li liquid calories is, a, is you know, uh, one, and, and in adults, you know, excess alcohol um, is one obvious place to start because it's sort of low-hanging fruit, uh, so to speak. But that's only, a, you know, one part of the problem. And so I think that dealing with marketing and advertising to children, um, dealing with, with physical activity, changing uh, incentives for industry so they have more incentives to sell us whole food and less incentive to sell us you know, grain uh, with sugar and, and salt or fat in a package, um, you know, changing, changing the types of, of, of foods we have. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that can be done with taxation, with subsidies, with school and workplace approaches. So I think that we have to, you know, you know step back and have a plan to prevent long-term weight gain. Um, understand that the difference in calories you're talking about is very small, and so we just need to have, 
have sort of nudges towards, towards healthy behavior. And then you know, formulate a food supply that encourages these intakes, of both industry to market and sell to us and for us to buy healthier whole foods and, and to cook at home, you know, to cook more and to, to, to eat mindfully, not in front of the television. I think there's a, a, a list of you know, five or six or seven things. And then on top of that, I just want to mention again that there's, we're, we don't have all the answers. You know, there are these interesting new science about, about sleep. You know, maybe we just need to, kids are sleeping about two hours less now than they were 30 years ago per day because of homework and activities and exercise. And there's lots of data about sleep and weight gain in kids. So we need to, you know, figure out how to get our kids to sleep more. Um, and then these interesting generational effects that may have to do with, with the, the bacteria in our bodies and so forth. So I think there's other things, but I, but but that's there. There are answers. Yeah. Dr. Kessler, um, would you like to to comment on sort of some of the policy um, that you see we could, you know, what are some of the bigger answers we can address? I I think we need to recognize that this is our this is my brain, this is the environment on my brain. How my brain represents um, those salient stimuli. This is not just about uh, learning cognitive circuitry. This is the affective circuitry um, in our brain. I mean, the, the, the problem is, you, you know, the panel is, I mean, is too fit, too thin. I mean, too... You flatter us. I mean, the, 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 I mean, talk to somebody who really struggles with their weight. I what you know, I need it. I want it. I mean, what's the if you look at probably, I think the great public health success to date. I mean, in our country, we probably would think, you know, maybe it's it's seat belts, but I but I think most of us would agree um, that tobacco ranks up there, and that happened in our lifetime. What was it? I mean, nicotine is a highly reinforcing. Uh, chemical, right? Uh, it, it used to be positively viewed as a very effective drug. It can change how you feel. It, it affects that affective uh, circuitry. What did we do? We didn't change the products. The cigarettes are still out there, but we changed how we perceive that stimulus. I used to perceive it as my friend, as something I wanted, something that I needed. Not everybody had that, but for those I mean, who were addicted uh, to nicotine, certainly they perceived it as their friend. What did we do? Right? We changed, I mean, there was a critical perceptual shift, right? I mean, the fact is we demonized the tobacco industry. We changed that shift from that's my friend to that's my enemy. Food is much uh, harder. I mean, what, the, the thing we have to be careful about, right, I mean, is not stigmatizing obesity. But I think if we can agree on what it is that about the food, the big portions, right? The fact that we're eating all the time, that, we're, that there is no boundaries, there's no meal time anymore. The fact that the food is so highly processed, I mean, in essence, we're eating baby food. And the fact that it's so stimulating that we keep on eating, and at least for those who have problems with it, for, for which it has become a salient uh, stimuli, it is very high in fat and sugar, fat and salt, fat, sugar, and salt. So, so we have to change our social norms. It's how we, and how we perceive um, these big portions. So I think we're gonna open it up to some questions now, and I think we're gonna maybe go with the online question first, just since we missed that last time. 
I just want to say we have so much activity online and unfortunately we're coming to the end of our allocated time. So I can't take all of these questions, but I do want to encourage everyone online to participate. There's the chat that will be wrapping up, but you can still post your questions online and continue the dialogue amongst yourselves. Um, I do know that folks are going to need to be getting out and back to class. So I just um, unfortunately won't be able to offer all these questions, but please go online and you'll be able to see them. I'd just like to interject that also the Huffington Post Healthy Living section will have a continued discussion of this all day and we'll have, we'll post this and highlights as well. So um, I just want to thank Dr. Willett and Dr. Mozafarian and Dr. Rich and Dr. Kessler so much for coming and participating. Um, it was a wonderful discussion and I think we learned a lot. So thank you so much and thanks to you for coming and, and This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.